Oh, Father, do hold us fast in the grip of the saving blood of your Son, and let none snatch us out of your hand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we entered the series on Romans, I knew there would be days like this. <laughs> when we get into a section of the, of the Scripture that gets, well, a little technical and a little complicated, and you'll see from the testimony of several um, commentators who I'll quote today, um, a difficult passage. And because it's difficult, perhaps we don't usually contend with it. But I want to make a go at it this morning. Now, if anybody, did anybody watch uh, last week's service on, uh, on YouTube? Nobody, uh, so, some of you did. Did you notice how many times I took this thing out and just... <laughs> I watched it myself. It was distracting. It feels a little cooler today. So if you're cold, good. That'll keep you awake. But I want you to know... I love when preaching is like work, so I don't mind sweating through it. It is work. The laborer is worthy of his wage, the apostle said. Do not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. I guess in that proverb, that makes me the ox. Um, so let's turn to Romans chapter 6. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll read the first 14 verses. What shall we say then... Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Father, add your presence, O Lord, to this, the reading and proclamation of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think you could see by that text, which we won't get near to unraveling this morning, but I think you can see this could take some weeks, this could take some time to go through these concepts. 
but they are glorious concepts. And um, I pray we will make a glorious attempt in expositing them. And so what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? Now, I labored quite a bit over that last week. What shall we say then? In other words, the apostle is coming out and saying, after all I've told you, I understand that you could get the idea that because where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, that we might just as well stay in sin that grace might abound. You see, it could be a logical deduction. But then he says, certainly not, for how shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Now, as we saw from last week's remarks, the anticipated question, shall we sin that grace may abound, is rendered foolish by the following rhetorical question. The question, shall we sin that grace may abound, is immediately canceled out by the reality of the new birth, by the question that you should have asked after hearing Paul go through all the aspects of justification. Not shall we sin that grace may abound, but how shall we who died to sin live in any longer? That should be the question that was asked, that was prompted. And so Paul refers to this simple answer. He said, certainly not. Or if you like some of your versions, say, God forbid. And then he follows it with the question that the hearer should have asked. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? All right? Now, this is the question that will come up in your evangelism. Because you're letting people know that their works don't matter, good or evil. They don't matter. What matters is the work Christ has done in your heart, in the heavenlies, without your consent. That's what matters. And so you can quickly come to the conclusion, well, if it doesn't matter what I do and I can still be saved, why don't I do whatever I want? And you can say, you know, guess what? You can do whatever you want. It's implicit it's implicit in the shall we sin. In other words, there's, a, there's room there for a decision on your part. And I want to impress on you this morning, I didn't do it in the, in the notes, but I want you to know that when you sin, it is your fault because you decided to sin. And you might think, well, no, I fell into it. Or No, friends, we always sin on purpose. I just want us to know that as an aside. Shall we sin, the apostle asks. In other words, we can decide to sin, we can decide not to sin. It's implicit in every one of the questions he gives. Uh, look down at uh, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. In other words, you have charge over it. You can let it reign or you cannot let it reign, right? And so he puts that out there. But he's saying, you see, the new creature... How shall we who died to sin and became something else live in that old way any longer? He's saying you should have better desires and you should acquire those desires over time. And part of that acquisition is by being in a congregation of fellow believers with gifts so that they can help you along the way. Those gifts are there for you. They don't belong. The, the gift of preaching doesn't belong to the preacher. It belongs to the church. You see, the church is not incidental in any of this teaching, and we'll see this as we go through Romans. I put a textual note in there uh, on this verse uh, because uh, I know some of your texts say, God forbid. I want you to know that is not in the Greek text. The, the word is meganoito, and it means literally may it not be. So don't be troubled by the fact that, you're, that the translators of one version decided to say, God forbid. It doesn't do any... Uh, violence to the text to say that. But just so we know, as a textual point, it's not in the original. All right? Um, uh, translators can take great discretion. 
for different reasons. And, and usually it's, uh, they make right decisions. And, uh, and I'll leave it at that for your, uh, for your own scholarship. But the question, shall we sin, can only be asked by a hearer who did not quite understand that in justifying the sinner, God also crucified the sinner. That old sinner is dead. He died with Christ. This is the blessed doctrine of our union with Christ. And it will take some sessions for us to come to full grips with it. And uh, in the way of confession, I'm not sure I fully have it grasped in my, own, in my own mind. But all of evangelicalism, friends, is predicated on the reality of the new birth, isn't it? It's all about the new birth. birth. That's what we preach. That's what Jesus preached to Nicodemus. You can't see the kingdom of God. You, you're in your old birth. You need the new birth. Shall I enter a second time into my mother's womb? Please don't ask that question. All of evangelicalism is predicated on the reality of the new birth and the doctrine of our union with Christ. We died with him. In fact, this text says he crucified us. We think of us crucifying him, but in his death, we were crucified with him. Those of us that have faith. Faith is, begins with the crucifixion in our hearts, the old man has died. But because we're joined to Christ, he came up from the grave, so will we. Just as being dead to sin is part of our union with Christ, being alive to grace is part of our union with Christ as well. So the doctrine of the union with Christ is what's being discussed here. And so the apostles driving home the spiritual operation of the new birth. How does, what does this new birth really mean? Is it just, as I pointed out last week, it's not just a change of attitude, isn't it? Is it? It's not just, well, I'm giving up one religion, I'm taking on another one. You know? And so he's driving home the spiritual operation of the new birth and the divine privilege placed upon the new believer. So the process of justification by faith always begins with this death. The old man must be crucified. He's done us no good. And so Paul speaks of our dying to sin. A death puts, put, uh, took place, and more to the point, a rebirth filled the void left by the death. Right? For those who do not have faith in Christ, rebirth doesn't emerge from the death. The death is final. It's, it's in fact, eternal. It'll never be reconciled. We have only this life to seek that reconciliation with God. After this life, all bets are off, friends. Betting has closed, right? The recipient of the rebirth receives with his new life a new nature. And that's what the apostle's talking about. Our old nature passes away with our old life, and we receive a new nature like unto Christ's nature. And that new nature is not ruled by sin. You are sin's master. So if you're sinning today, it's because you chose to. Let me just say, um, Martin Luther wrote a book called The, the Bondage of the Will. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. Bondage of the Will, Freedom of the Will. Both books are about the same thing. They're about the extent to which sin is in your power to resist. You have the will. The born-again believer has the will to resist sin. Every sin you commit is a sin you chose to commit. And so Paul speaks to our dying to sin, uh, of the death taking place, of the rebirth filling the void, and the recipient of the rebirth 
receives with his life a new nature. He receives a nature not ruled by sin. I'm going to use a word, our, our, our Adamic nature. What do I mean by Adamic? Well, we have Adam, right? And Adam is a noun, but when we make it an adjective, we say Adamic. So our Adamic nature, or the nature we received from Adam, is called our Adamic nature. It's a doctrinal word, but I think it's a useful one for us to know. So our old nature, when we were in Adam, our Adamic nature was ruled by sin. Before we had faith in Christ, our lives were ruled by sin. Even our righteousnesses, Isaiah said, are filthy rags before a holy God. So everything we did was sinful. Every good intention we had was really a bad intention. Some sins are relatively less evil than others. Not all sin is equal. I hope we know that not all sin is equal. I've taught on that a number of times. We'll go into it on a, at another time. But our new nature is not ruled by sin as our old Adamic nature was. It's ruled by Christ. Friends, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And faith stands in the, in the center calling you to receive it. If you receive faith in Christ, the old man has passed away. Adam is dead in you. He has no more power in you. You will not inherit death. You will inherit life. So we're dead to sin and its ruling influence in our lives. The new nature does not conform to natural laws but to spiritual laws. And that's why we read this in verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is where he complicates it for us a little because he gives an allusion to baptism. I'm going to try to unpack some of what he's saying here this morning. Um, he didn't have to refer to baptism, but he did it because he assumed we all had the same view. He assumed that baptism would be a great illustration, right? And so I should say at the outset that if there is a stumbling block in this verse, it's in our understanding of the concept of baptism in the context. Friends, this is not a passage about baptism. It's almost incidental to the teaching of our union with Christ. But it makes a great illustration if we have the New Testament understanding of what he's saying. Okay? And so many commentators disagree as to the nature of the spiritual death due to a, um, a misunderstanding of the nature of baptism. Now, um, in Lloyd-Jones's uh, uh, notes on this, his sermon on this, he went, through, uh, he went through five false views of baptism in one right view, which, was, of course, is the view that he would champion. And I, of course, agreed with him all the way al along the way. Um, the, the thing is that, uh, that I should say is I'm not going to go through those five false views. It's just, it's too laborious for a, a Sunday morning uh, service, but I'll, uh, I'll try to um, unpack the general, the general teachings of um, how people have viewed baptism over the years. When Paul wrote this, he didn't know that people were going to be discerning it or uh, expositing it 2,000 years later with 10 different views for baptism. He didn't know that would happen. He just assumed everyone had the same view because Seems they did. So we should note at the outset that the apostle is apprising us of one of the most glorious doctrines of our faith, which is our union with Christ. And my hope is that if I can expose for you the power of context here, that we'll not see this verse as making a definitive statement on baptism. That's an ancillary concern if it's a concern at all. Paul inserted it to illustrate a point. And if we receive the illustration, it's really a glorious illustration. 
So what Paul is teaching is that if a person's been justified before God by the atoning power of Christ on the cross, then a death has occurred, as we've said. That's understood, right? That's readily understood. We're crucified with Christ by faith. Our faith in his crucifixion on our behalf crucifies us. And the reference to baptism here is an analogy of burial, which the apostle explicitly states in the very next verse where he writes, Therefore we were buried with him. Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him? What is buried, friends? Buried is the certificate, if you will, of having died. It's the proof. This guy is dead. How do you know? Well, he's buried. And if he wasn't dead when we buried him, he will be pretty soon. Right? So it's the, it's the appraisal of death, burial. He compares it to baptism. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, what's the problem here? Can you see the problem beginning to arise? Let me ask you a question then this morning. I have to poll the congregation this morning. When I baptized you in the pond, did I save you? Did I kill you? Did I bury you? I didn't do any of those things, did I? I symbolized, though. I acted out a part. I acted out a symbol of what Jesus already did to you in the heavenly pond, if you will. Right? So he's not talking about water baptism. Water baptism, and this is going to be difficult for me to bring out to you, so you've got to stay with the thinking here. The picture of baptism is what he's talking about. We were buried with him through baptism. And the physical baptism in the pond, or the pool, the Listies pool, or the lake, right? The physical baptism is a picture of what happened in heaven. Can we assent that? Is that... That should be agreeable, right? And so the baptism symbolizes the death, right? The burial. You're immersed. You're submerged in the water. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And we come up. I almost wish we could do it like in the movies, come up in slow motion. You know, with the water coming off and the wind blowing the garment. You know, in the glory of God, and maybe a bird well, landing on us. <laughs> um, I almost wish we could do it that way, but, uh, but we can't. And so through the picture of a baptism, Paul gives us this glorious illustration of death and burial and rebirth. I'll point out also that if we focus on a false view of the use of the word baptism, we may well miss the whole point that the apostle's making. And Lloyd-Jones went through very laboriously and showed how many people missed this point because of it. Um, And Calvin explicitly agrees with him. And so I looked into both men's comments on this. The reference is not to point us to a discussion of baptism, but to a discussion of death and rebirth that a first-century understanding of baptism illustrates to anyone who have witnessed or received a baptism. The first century understanding of baptism that Paul refers to here would be a beautiful illustration. And he assumed that the Romans all had that view. 
and that they knew that the efficacious baptism wasn't the one we symbolize in the pond. It was the one that happened in the heavenlies. In fact, we weren't candidates for baptism until we were baptized by Christ. And I'll illustrate that to you this morning. The reference is there as an illustration to bolster the reality of our union with Christ in his death. Neither of these theologians, Calvin nor Lloyd-Jones, takes the Baptist view of baptism. I want to put that out there. They don't take our view. Yet they both agree that the New Testament concept of baptism is that baptism does not bring about the new birth. In other words, they don't take the Catholic view. The Catholic view is called sacramentarianism because that view says that the sacrament itself enacted by the priest is what caused the salvation. That's a blatant superstition and goes against the, new, the teaching of the New Testament in all of its aspects. Okay, So they don't take that view either. So they both agree in the New Testament concept of baptism that baptism doesn't bring about the new birth. Rather, it is the new birth that qualifies the believer to be baptized. Understood? That's basically our Baptist view. We hold to that. And so there's no mode or means of baptism that can unite the one baptized with Christ. I can't unite you with Christ by doing some external act upon you. It has to already be done by Christ. But rather, baptism is a rite, an R-I-T-E rite, right, a ceremony, that signifies that a born-again believer has already been united with Christ by faith. That's why we baptize believers, because we know the work has already been done by Christ, and we're giving testimony of it publicly, all right? Now, I want you to know, let me say one more thing about baptism, and it's not just because we're Baptists, but it's because we're Christians. You have to be baptized if you believe in Christ. You have to be. Those people that want to say, oh, well, you know, I'm not good in public or I'm afraid of water. Friends, get over it. You have to get over that. It is a command of God that you be immersed publicly by an agent of the church. You must make that testimony. And um, don't come to me with an excuse. There are none. The only excuse is I am willingly going to obey, disobey Christ's first command for my life, which is if I have faith, I must be baptized. So let's dispense with that, all right, in a very strong way, if I may, this morning. So the reference to baptism is an allusion to bolster the reality of our union with Christ in his death. Neither of these theologians takes the Baptist view, but both agree that the New Testament view is a view of baptism by immersion. Lloyd-Jones writes this. The teaching of the New Testament is that the people who are to be baptized are those who have already given evidence that they're regenerate. It is believers who are baptized in the New Testament. Okay? That's a quote from a supposedly pedo-baptist. Um, it is believers who are baptized in the New Testament. And he goes on. So it's not the act of baptism that makes them believers. It's because they're believers or are presumed to be believers. We can be wrong about someone. They can be wrong about themselves. They may not be a true believer. That's not on me if I baptize you. That's on you that you didn't really make your peace with God. Um, and you thought you did. But the, it's not the act of baptism that makes them believers. It's because they're believers or presumed to be believers that they are baptized. And then he goes on to give the obvious examples. The Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, and the Philippian jailer, and others who received baptism and pleaded to receive baptism after they believed. Like Peter said in Acts 10 with Cornelius, can anyone deny that these should be baptized as we were? 
The whole view of the rite of baptism flies against the sacramentarian view of the Catholic Church, that it is baptism itself that joins us to Christ. Friends, the whole Protestant movement is based on the fact that faith precedes the outward sign. Lloyd-Jones writes again, Protestantism is a protest against all that sacramentarianism teaches. Protestantism teaches the universal priesthood of all believers and asserts particularly that no action on behalf of the church or by priests can give life or can produce this union. I leave it at that, he says. A footnote in Calvin. Paul's object seems to be merely to show that a change takes place in every true Christian symbolized by baptism, not caused by it. And that this change bears a likeness to the death and resurrection of our Savior. And then it goes on to say that the mode of baptism immersion is intimated by buried has been thought by most, by Chrysostom, Augustine, Hammond, uh, Piraeus, Mead, Grotius, Doddridge, Calmers, and others. Those are a, a, a bunch of um, uh, theologians down through the ages. Chrysostom and, and Augustine go back to the 5th century and these others up toward the Reformation of Calvin's time. If this were not a God-breathed verse, friends, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I would be inclined to say that a reference to baptism here is unfortunate. He didn't need to do it. He did it because he thought everyone had the same view, particularly because Paul expresses the doctrine of union elsewhere in in the New Testament with no mention of baptism at all. Consider what he said to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ, he writes. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lloyd-Jones calls that primitive evangelism, the idea that we're united to Christ in his death and in his life and in his promise of eternal life. So the reference to baptism in Romans 6 is only unfortunate to those who are quickly diverted from the apostle's purpose by asserting a mode of baptism alien to the New Testament. The apostle clearly uses the term to illustrate death and resurrection by immersion and re-emergence from the water. The real immersion, friends, took place in the heavenlies before by Jesus Christ. I'm going to illustrate that in a minute, but um, verse 4 says, Therefore we were buried. We died with Christ, therefore we were buried. All right? The baptism that we do is like a baptism, it's like a death certificate. You're buried with Christ through baptism into death. So just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now I'd venture to say that the apostle is not concerned with baptism here. It's my hope this morning I can turn our attention to the matter at hand, which is death and rebirth, burial and resurrection, and our fellowship with him in these things. But in order to do that, it's probably worthwhile to dispense with the controversy over the use of the term baptize. Okay, I've told you many times my views on this, that we are baptized. We are immersed into the church by the great baptizer. John? No. The great baptizer, Jesus Christ. Now, why would I say that? Because John the Baptist, the great prophet, said that very thing. This is what John said about Jesus Christ. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. 
In other words, you had to come to John and says, I repent of my sin, and he would perform the function upon you, right? But he who's coming after me is mightier than I. I think we know who that is. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there's two baptizers in this verse, and there are two forms of baptism. One is water baptism, one is Holy Spirit baptism. Friends, if you are not baptized with the Holy Spirit, you should never have been baptized in water. So at the very least, the baptism of John is a distinctly different thing than the baptism of Jesus Christ, though the same words used to describe both. I would ask us to consider the relationship between the elements and the agents of the baptism. Now, what do I mean by that? In the first case, the agent is John. John's the baptizer, right? And his medium, his, his, um, his element of baptism is water. So we have the agent is John, the medium is water, right? He'll immerse the repentant sinner in the water, and the symbol signifies a number of things, a washing. We're led by today's text to see that it also signifies burial and rebirth. Or at least it did, it, Paul assumed it did to the Romans, because he didn't go on and talk about baptism the way I'm doing it. He just passed right by it, assuming that everyone would get it. We're told from our lexicon that the Greek word baptisma rendered baptism, and this is a quote from the lexicon, consists of the process of immersion, submersion and emergence from the word bapto, which means to dip, he says, is used A, of John's baptism, and B, of Christian baptism. So the same words used of both baptisms. And then we get this note, baptismas, as distinct from baptisma, the ordinance, the one we perform, is used of ceremonial washing of articles. So a simple washing of articles, cups, plates, etc., does not make an adequate example of our spiritual baptism, and a different form of the word is used in those instances. In other words, to simply talk about washings and um, consecrating of holy vessels and things, a different word is used to characterize that in the Greek texts. The Greek baptizo is the verb form to baptize. The lexicon again says, primarily a frequentative form of bapto to dip, which we saw in the last example, was used among the Greeks to signify the dyeing of a garment or the drawing of water by dipping a vessel into another. Um, it's, obviously, it's talking about the, um, the submersion of something into water or, in some cases, into wine. Um, the, the lexicon gave some examples of Plutarch who talked about uh, dipping his vessel into a vat of wine and bringing it up by using the word baptizo. And uh, he went back a few centuries and said Plato used the same word to talk about being um, barraged with questions. He was being baptized by questions. Um, what's, why that's significant is because in order for translators to understand how to use these words, they have to go back into ancient texts where the words are used, even secular text, to see in context what the word means. You see? It's a very scholastic process. Now, this word baptizo is used in today's text. I say baptizo rather than baptizo because I'm Italian. Uh, it's a spiritual phenomenon. It is still represented by the outward immersion of the new believer in water, as the text specifically says. It seems to me that the lexicon hits upon the very point of the passage with this note. 
It says baptizo would indicate that the baptized person was closely bound to or became the property of the one who's, into whose name he was baptized. And that, of course, I can reference with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, um, 19, I believe, where he says, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it speaks of our identification with Christ. We're baptized into his name. He now owns us, you see. Or as it's called elsewhere, our blessed union with Christ. We are immersed. Later on, one of the commentators will say incorporated into Christ. And I have an illustration for you there that um, I hope you'll like. So John tells us that the true baptizer will come after him. John's not the true baptizer. I'm not the true baptizer, right? Those baptisms are necessary They're commands of God that we undergo them. But the true baptizer will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He'll not use water to baptize. Rather, he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. In this case, the agent of baptism has changed from John to Jesus. The medium of baptism is also changed from water to the Holy Spirit. Everyone who's a candidate for water baptism today must already be immersed in the Holy Spirit. And I would add that he's also immersed or engrafted into the body of Christ, which is the church. Friends, the church is not incidental in this process. I know that there's a great, uh, what Ken used to call the Lone Ranger view of Christianity, where you can just become this Christian, this sort of floater, and you go around and use your wonderful gifts to edify all the other people and all the other churches, but you never, you never um, covenant with a particular local body, which is the New Testament pattern, right? You never covenant with a local body in order to receive your own counsel and your own accountability and to, use, and to use that as the theater to express your own gifts that are given you by God. We're not special Lone Ranger Christians. We belong to a body. And you could say, oh, well, I'm part of the universal church. Well, so were the people in Corinth, but they still went to church in Corinth and did what the Corinthian pastors um, told them to do. Same in Philippi, same in... Um, the Galatian churches were all cities. Ephesus was a great city. Rome, right? These are local churches. The local church is not incidental to Christianity. It is the picture, like baptism is the picture of your death and burial and resurrection with Christ. So the church is the picture of Christianity fulfilling its mission in the world. Don't make the church incidental. Um, and that's another doctrine of ecclesiology that is very much neglected in evangelical circles. I remember I, I've been in certain evangelical campaigns where we were not even allowed. We, we were, we'd give the altar call, people come down, give their lives to Christ. You weren't even allowed to invite them to your church. And I thought, that, that is absurd. That's what the next step they need. But you had, oh, no, the Holy Spirit will do the work. He'll just lead them all. Um, but if that were true, the Holy Spirit would be leading them into the church. You see what I'm saying? That's his mission. And so John tells us that the, the true baptizer will come after him. And he'll not use water. He'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. Um, and he, uh, of course, goes on with that. I would add that he's also immersed or engrafted into the body of Christ. And I would add that he's also immersed and in... Uh, And the entire exchange is done by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus immerses you in the church. That's part of this baptism. 
Just as we're justified in the privileges of justification are thrust upon us, so are we baptized and the benefit of baptism with the Holy Spirit is thrust upon us. Just as membership in the body, which is the church, is thrust upon us. Paul's whole point is these things are done to us. We don't do them to ourselves. We symbolize them in the outward act of a water baptism. Now at Pentecost, we saw the literal fulfillment of John's prophecy that he who comes later, mightier than me, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we saw both of those things at Pentecost, right? No one's seen the fire ever again. It was only done once because baptism is only done once. So the church was baptized in the upper room at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came upon them through the evidences of the sounds and the tongues and all of those things, the rushing mighty wind sound. It doesn't say much rushing mighty wind, it says the sound of it. Um, and then the fire was a literal fire that appeared on the heads of the participants that day. That's never happened again. I don't know any other uh, charismatic church that says, oh yeah, the fire appears all the time over our heads. No one's ever said that. Because it's a once-for-all thing, as baptism should be. It doesn't need to be done again. There's no need for the church to be baptized again. But every new believer needs to be baptized that is immersed into the Holy Spirit who resides in the church and is engrafted into Christ, who is the head of the body, the great baptizer. The baptism that we render to one another is the physical, visible representation of the spiritual immersion that has already taken place by Jesus Christ when you believed. Paul's laboring to teach us this. I don't want us to miss it. When you were immersed, that is, joined to Christ, you were baptized and are now a candidate for baptism. Just think about all that's been said so far in the, in the series. Think about everything we've went through from chapter 1 to this chapter 6 and recognize that there was nary a reference to baptism. Paul didn't talk about baptism in any of these chapters. It's not, he's not teaching on baptism. For the text to suddenly switch to teaching on baptism would be a very odd transition. The apostle uses the term because he believes it to be a familiar subject to his audience, and he's teaching on our union with Christ that has been accomplished by our justification before God by Christ. Baptism as a metaphor for burial and death and resurrection is a wonderful illustration when properly understood. And certainly Paul assured that his first century readers had a right understanding of the process because he didn't teach the way I'm doing now and he didn't in the way Lloyd-Jones did in his sermons on the subject. We dealt with baptism because Paul dealt with baptism in Romans. He mentions it. And so again, without any use of the baptism illustration, Paul makes the same point to the, Col to the Colossians. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Friends, the words in him are interchangeable with the words joined to Christ. In fact, I would go so far as to say the words in him are interchangeable with salvation. You are in Christ. And so he makes what he believes is an obvious connection. Those of us who find faith in Christ have experienced a death. We're dead to sin. They're dead to Adam. They're alive to Christ and to grace and to the glory of God. The whole thrust of the passage is to teach the glorious doctrine of our union with Christ. Baptism is merely the point of illustration as to the process by which that union is achieved. And so the illustration's a powerful one. 
if baptism's rightly understood in the first place. And I suggest to you that Paul expected his Roman readers to be well-oriented with the process and principle of baptism. So verses 5 and 6 move us on. If we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Friends, I remember the first time I was apprised of our union with Christ as a specific doctrine. I remember reading it, my reading many years ago. It was from the teachings of a book by Wayne Mack and John MacArthur. And there was a whole couple of chapters on this subject. And so they write this, Union with Christ is at once a difficult and woefully neglected subject, the latter possibly explained by the former. Because it's difficult, we neglect it. Okay? Sinclair Ferguson Our spiritual union with Christ is a doctrine which lies at the heart of the Christian life is intimately related to all other doctrines. Union with Christ is the foundation of all our spiritual experience and all spiritual blessings. John Murray, union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application but also in its once-for-all accomplishment as the finished work of Christ. And what would a roster of Commentators be without A.W. Pink. Pink writes, spiritual union is the most important, the most profound, and yet the most blessed of any doctrine that is set forth in the sacred scriptures. So we are at, in the opinions of these well-informed men, the crux of New Testament teaching. It's about the union with Christ of all true believers and the extent of that union and what it means for us. All of the teaching thus far in the message is predicated on what Paul thought would be a simple, succinct example. And that is that we who are united to Christ are immersed in all aspects of Christ. From his death to resurrection, to our spiritual inheritance, and to our future glory, we are in Christ. Not, we're not going to be in Christ. We're not being made to be in Christ. We are in Christ now. It is a finished work. It is done. We're united with him. Nothing can change that. And he'll labor over this for the next several chapters in this book. We are incorporated into him. You like that word incorporated? Here's what I thought. My illustration of this incorporation is a cooking analogy. Do you ever watch cooks on TV? Well, you should. If a good Christian should watch cooks, all the illustrations are there. But no, I, when um, the chef tells us he's got the mixing bowl and he's putting in all these. Ever notice how many ingredients these guys put in? You're watching like that seems like a lot of stuff. But he puts them in and he's mixing them and he says you must mix this till they're all fully incorporated. He says, "What does that mean? Well, you, you could no longer take them apart. You couldn't get the salt out of there or the pepper, right? Or the paprika. It's all incorporated." Incorporated is a good word for union. That's our union with Christ. We're mixed in with all the aspects and benefits and inheritances of Christ. We can't be separated. We've been mixed in. We're incorporated. The great chef in the sky has mixed us into the mixing bowl with Christ. And that's where we shall remain forever. Amen. Close your Bibles. Let's go. 
Another commentator notes that if we see our faith rightly, we become attached to Christ. So he uses the word attached. I think incorporated is better. We're confronted with the imperative to being, he writes, baptized in corporate. So we're mixed together with Jesus Christ by faith, just as we're mixed together with every aspects of Adam's nature, so, so are we now in Christ's nature. Formerly, we were mixed and incorporated into Adam. You couldn't separate Adam's sin from ours. Death spread to all men, so all men died. We were incorporated into sin. Well, God has the ability to unincorporate us. He has the ability to get the ingredient out of the mixing bowl and to make it clean and put it over here and mix it with better stuff. That's what he did. That's what our union with Christ is all about. We're no longer part of Adam's mixture, if you will. Adam's nature. We're of Christ's nature. And it's difficult. It's a difficult subject to teach, but the New Testament writers did it with, that, with, uh, with um, metaphors and allegories. And there were five of them, and I'll read them to you. There are at least five metaphors in the New Testament of this union. The first is from Ephesians, and these will all be familiar to you. But when you put them all together, you build this great and glorious doctrine that we celebrate in our whole Christian lives. And so he writes to the Ephesians, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In other words, our union with Christ is symbolized by showing that we're a great edifice. We're all blocks, building blocks in this great building, and Christ is the cornerstone, the keystone, if you will, that holds the blocks together. So Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the building is continued in its growth all through the ages by all the saints and believers that are being added together to it like building blocks. That's the illustration that Paul gave to the Ephesians. Fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So there's our union with Christ. Christ uses us as the building material for a great temple that he will reside in and does reside in. It's a great illustration. Peter uses the same metaphor. I'm sure you're familiar. He says, coming to him as to to a living stone, uh, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. So he uses the, the building analogy again. You're a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the building analogy teaches us of the inseparable union with Christ and his saints. There's a second analogy. I'm sure you're familiar with this one, also from Ephesians. It's the marriage metaphor. For we are members of his body of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. Isn't that interesting how he made marriage interchangeable with sainthood? He says it's a great mystery about marriage, but I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about your union with Christ. You're being one with Christ, not one with your spouse even though he used that as an analogy to expose our union with Christ. 
The third analogy is perhaps my favorite, and it's from the Gospel of John. It's the vine and the branches. Remember this one? I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bear fruits, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Like I'm struggling in Christ right now. Ah, oh, you're being pruned. Don't worry, you'll bear more fruit. Give it time. You're already clean, he writes, because of the word which I've spoken to you. In other words, I've already done the work in the heavenlies. I had the word spoken to you. You're already qualified to be grafted into the plant. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. That means live in me. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's our union with Christ. We have to be tied in with the vine as the branches. It's, it's a wonderful time of year to teach on this because this is tomato growing season. And you go in and you see those brown leaves. I hope you don't have brown leaves. I have them again. You cut them off. What happens to them? Do they grow and sprout? No, they, they die away. They're not connected to the vine anymore. But the rest of the vine produces more green leaves. The more you cut away, the more energy in the plant goes to building other green, healthy leaves. And so he gives to me here uh, an analogy that I'm really very familiar with. And so as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. The branch can do nothing without the vine. That's our union with Christ. We are impotent to do anything worthwhile spiritually if we're not grafted in to the vine, the life-giving vine, which is Christ. The fourth analogy is Paul's reference to our union as a body with many parts. You know this one, right? As the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Again, that baptism uses incorporation. We're incorporating all the elements. We were immersed into, baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. A union with Christ. The body of Christ. Paul's nickname for the church. Just as a right understanding of baptism illustrates union, so a right understanding of the church illustrates union as well. We are the body of Christ. And then there's the fifth. The fifth metaphor is the one given in these passages from Romans. MacArthur writes this, the most significant in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of two corporate races under which all mankind is subsumed. Two corporate races, what are they? Adam and Christ. You are either grafted in, uh, you are either um, enjoined and in union with Adam and sin and death, or you're enjoined in union with Christ and grace and life everlasting. One or the other. There's no more camps, just the two. And so uh, MacArthur says one is the race of all unregenerate persons who are in Adam, the race is under the sentence of death. The second Adam, which is a New Testament term for Christ, right? The second Adam, Christ, is the head of a second corporate race. 
In Romans, Paul points to the bond that joins all the descendants of Adam with the progenitor as the pattern and type of the communion between Christ and his own. We're either united in Adam or we're united in Christ. And according to John MacArthur, that's the, that's the great and most significant illustration in the New Testament, the one we've been working on here in Romans 5 and 6. All right. As we noted from the book of Romans, the first consequence of union with Christ was justification. We talked about that quite a bit. It's the consequence of faith in Christ. A second fruit of our union is the newness of life that Paul speaks of in so many places in Scripture, that newness of life, the new creature. Old things passed away, all things have become new. Right? We speak of our old man and our new man, right? <clears throat> A third consequence would, of course, be the indwelling spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to the beloved, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Your your union with Christ is guaranteed because the third member of the Trinity, who is also God, lives in you. And he will guarantee that those who are justified will be glorified because you're in Christ. And finally, I'm going to close with this. This is Jesus' testament in prayer to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed this prayer of union. I don't think you can miss the union that Christ celebrates here, even at this hour in his life. I do not pray for these alone, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. That's, he's praying for us right there. I don't pray for these alone. He's talking about the disciples that are with him. He says, but I pray for all those down through the ages who will believe in his word. He's praying for us. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So we are one with God the way Christ is one with God, is what he's saying. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may, may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's our union with Christ. God the Father loves the Son, the head of the church, and God the Father loves the saints, the body of the church. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That's part of the union. We'll be with Christ where he is. And it doesn't mean eventually, although that's sometimes easier to see. He means right now. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. The blessed union of the saints with Christ was prayed for by the Son. The prayer is answered in the church. Our Father, we praise you for your word, and I ask, O oh Lord, that through the weeks in our series, you will unfold to us the deep truths of your word in this great doctrine. 
that we would come to know and to celebrate the wonderful privilege it is to be in union with Jesus Christ for all eternity. Amen.